one of the big challenges these days is that people stop exploring. People think, okay, I have the family, I have the job, I'm paying the bills, I'm good. And I think when we say that's enough, too often that's when we start to uh, move downward. But what about exploring? What are you interested in? You know, what, what do you want to know more about? Or what do you want to experience in your life? Hey, this is Wills Francis. And Justin Ahrens. And from Rule 29, this is Design Of. And you know, Wills, today on our show, we have an interview with Dan Lerner. He's a speaker, a teacher, performance coach, who focuses on using positive psychology to help people lead happy lives. Now, when you say performance coach, is that like the the lifestyle, the yes man that tells me to eat more broccoli and sign up for skydiving lessons and, and stand up for myself more? <laughs> I'm sure Dan will love that 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 was your first, you know, uh, thought. Because I, I ask because this is now the second podcast in a row that I've been riding the bench on while that Bob Davidson has been taking my place. Yeah, but if you notice that the only one in studio today is you and I, which shows you who's really committed to this podcasting thing. That's true. Right. That's true. No, but that's not who Dan is at all. In fact, he has an incredible, impressive resume, which you're going to hear about a lot. And apart from that, he's an exceptional human being that blends positive psychology with real-life professional experience. And he does this to help his clients understand themselves and, frankly, to live happier lives. So, you know, I, I want to start, like, way back. I want to start <laughs> with, I want you to visualize little Dan. I can see him. Okay, little yes. Dan. So, what age you want to start? Let's say, let's say before ten. Cool. Okay. okay. Where yeah. were you, where were you living at the time? I was in Pittsburgh. Okay. I was in Pittsburgh. I can actually tell you my very first memory, whoa, which, was, which whoa, is formative. Whoa. This is awesome. All right, oh, let's go. Good. Ready? Yeah. So, my very first memory, um, literally, was sneaking out of bed when I must have been three or maybe four, uh, but we moved house when I was four, so it was okay. very young. It was in the first house, sneaking out of bed and sneaking after bedtime, uh, sneaking down the stairs. Uh, and sitting on the landing to peek around the corner and watch my parents uh, play music together. Okay, I thought this was going a different direction. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, music. So, all right, no, this this is a family show, but I mean, show, yeah, right? yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yes, they were playing music together. Okay, uh, in the living room, and uh, and I remember just sitting there and watching them do mm. what they did. My parents were. Uh, were professional musicians though. Okay. So I got a chance to watch my father, who was a flute player in the Pittsburgh Symphony for many years. My mother, who was a very successful opera singer, um, make music, uh, not in front of thousands of people as they would usually do, but just together in this little house and have a wonderful time doing it. So my first memories were really of people who were excellent at what they did, um, wow. but also really enjoying, loving what it was they were doing, not for any reason other than for the work itself. And that, that played a huge role in, in where things would go. Uh, sometimes they would have friends over uh, from the symphony or, am or amateur musicians just to play, but it was always classical music, and they just loved that. Uh, they loved that genre of music. Do you play music yourself? I grew up playing the cello, so I played uh, all the way through college and then uh, stopped playing. Uh, I actually thought about playing, and I called my called my dad at the end of my freshman year of college, and um, I said, you know, I think this is what I want to do for a living, and he was thrilled. Could hear it over the phone. He was, you know, of course, my yeah, son. He's yeah. going to be a musician, as yeah. I always hoped. And he said, "This is wonderful. Uh, we'll do exactly uh, for you what my parents did for me, which is challenging because both my parents were, were immigrant children. Um, we will we will uh, support you for a year. 
you come home and you practice every day in your room from nine to five. And then when that year is over, you go and you audition for music conservatories and off you'll go. And I thought, wow, that sounds horrible. (laughs) (laughs) So there's no way I'm doing this. I mean, I'm not gonna sit at home in my room alone with my parents (laughs) for the next year. I knew that at college, in in college, I was able to play ball. I was writing for the paper. I had a, I was doing a radio show. I had a lot of friends, and there were girls. Uh, and uh, there were definitely uh, none of those things back in my room at home, so that wasn't happening. Uh, so I figured I needed to find another avenue to explore uh, my love for music. <laughs> I started playing the piano really young. And I played, um, gosh, I don't know, five or six years, and just wasn't working for me. Um, and that's when I picked up the cello, uh, which was my father's favorite instrument, um, which is why it was chosen hmm. for me. It's always been a challenge for me to sit still. Uh, maybe that was it with piano. Hmm. Although, you know, you look at certain pianists like Jerry Lee Lewis, you don't have to sit still. Right. But, um, but it was a challenge. I think it's always been a challenge for me in music. And it's, it's one of the things that uh, when I look at how... Uh, people thrive, mm-hmm. whether they're young. I mean, I, I have a little boy, I have an eight-year-old boy um, who can't sit still. So uh, can he thrive while he's sitting still? I don't think so. Mm. And that's, that's, that's one, of the, one of the many, many aspects that comes into how do people thrive in life that I think are important to, to consider. So no, I tried piano, couldn't sit still, didn't work. Tried cello, I couldn't sit still long enough to really put in a lot of practice because I wanted to get up and move, yeah. which my <laughs> dad didn't understand because he was the guy who sits and mm-hmm. focuses in place. When I think of the cello, I think the worst part of that, oh, it's a, I think it's the most beautiful sounding instrument, but carrying that to practice every day. All right, so here's the deal. Yes, it, it is a beast to carry to practice, and you're wondering why you're doing it, especially when you're getting teased in grade school. But then you get to college and you realize that having a cello is kind of sexy. Oh, right? And so it, you got to work the cello angle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I carried that thing all the time, even if I wasn't about to practice. Right. It was, where are you going? I don't know. I'm going to go to the football game. Why do you have your cello? I, because I can. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it, music has always been a huge part of my life. Mm. Um, listening, watching my parents, listening growing up, watching how much it meant to them. Mm. Um, and for them, it was really about making music, clearly, and, and the, um, doing what they end up doing for a living. Um, and for me, I think that uh, music uh, was certainly part of the playing. A lot of hearing, uh, listening to it, but it, it morphed into something uh, much bigger uh, later on. Okay. And that part of my exploration in life, I think, which, which started with walking down the stairs, crawling down the stairs, and listening through playing, then continued on to think to really think about how can I help people who are interested in music, and how can I help get music out to to a broader audience and help them understand the power that it has. During his college years, Dan had an insatiable appetite to learn and travel and at one point even spent a couple of months on a goat farm in the French countryside. All of these experiences contributed to Dan's understanding of what creates happiness in people, and how can that happiness be sustained throughout life's different seasons. These travels eventually brought him back to the States and positioned him well for his next formative experience. And I wound up uh, at the Santa Fe Opera one summer, which is a really wonderful uh, environment and um, community uh, of musicians that come together for for the summer to, to do really high-level performances in a, in a gorgeous setting. It's outdoor, uh, partly outdoor uh, a theater where you can you sit, watch the sunset every night. It's really a lovely place mm. to, to participate in the arts. And I was involved in um, fundraising at a very low level, uh, but fundraising and development, just getting a sense of how that works. And I also met a lot of folks in the industry because so many people come to Santa Fe 
uh, whether it's singers or agents, that I started to meet a lot of agents, and that really caught my attention. I remember having a conversation with one uh, who, who is still a, a friend and a wonderful man, and I remember thinking, wait, what you do for a living is you take care of, you find young talent and you help nurture that talent so that they can explore it for themselves and share it with the rest of the world. I'm in. Hmm. And uh, I almost didn't go to France the next summer because I said, you know, am I going to lose the opportunity to get into this world? So this is between your sophomore, junior year of college. Is, right. Okay. Right. And then after junior, I was to France and right after senior year, it was clear I was going to go into agenting. I, you know, for me, to go back to the farm, part of the thing that was fascinating was just other human beings, how they live their lives. And if you can thrive in that environment versus the arts environment versus an academic environment, to see that that's all possible. So I, you know, I was so interested in people and how they develop, and I thought, when you, when you get to represent artists, you're dealing with human beings. And they happen to be particularly talented, and they happen to be particularly driven in an area that I was particularly interested in. So the combination worked. Uh, and I took a job uh, following my senior year. I, I literally packed up my Jeep, drove to Pittsburgh, dropped everything off, got out, went to New York, and moved in with my grandparents, much to their chagrin, in their one-bedroom <laughs> apartment. <laughs> On the Upper West Side, they were very gentle and encouraging me to get an apartment as quickly as I possibly could, which I did. But that was it. I had a job waiting for me at Columbia Artists um, wow. in New York. And immediately it was 100-plus-hour work weeks. And it wasn't because we had to. It was because... It was something I loved. I got to work with incredibly talented people um, who were performing something that I found so important and so moving. I'm assuming that your background, both as a musician mm -hmm. and your parents, mm -hmm. gave you a lot of great street cred and understanding and empathy for the people you were trying to work with, right? All the above. You, you, you hit it right in the head. Street cred, definitely. I knew a lot of the folks who were already in the business um, and empathy in a big way. You know, now the challenge was uh, that what I perceived um, uh, the life of musician to be, uh, because I saw my parents and the folks in Pittsburgh, uh, was quite a bit different than what I found when I got to the business. So, you know, as, as you recall, uh, I would go down the stairs and see my parents playing music, loving it, being really happy about doing it, and so many of the folks in their community, particularly in the Pittsburgh Symphony, um, as well as uh, folks in in, uh, in my mother's community she was still training mm -hmm. were really happy they're mm -hmm. living in a great town I'm biased but it was you know it was a great town very easy to live in town it's not like you're in New York where so it's, it's a heck of a race um, they were doing something they loved in one of the one of the great symphonies of the world and making a living and it's it's, it's pretty amazing but then you go to New York <laughs> and I went in thinking if we get young talent we're gonna help them be the best they can be and they're gonna be thrilled, they're gonna live great lives. But that's not necessarily how it went, nor is it how it goes. And that's uh, a divide that I found very quickly, and I found both, not shocking, but surprising and, um, and fascinating. So you have, I'd have clients who would be very successful. Um, they'd be singing everywhere around the world, but they'd also have these wonderful lives. They'd have families that were really important to them, that they made sure they spent time with. Um, and for them, often, if they didn't, or even if they did, the music they were making was really meaningful to them. This is how I express myself. They wouldn't say it necessarily, but this is how they would um, operate. They'd say, I need, this is my breath. I need to be able to, to share musically. Uh, but then you had other folks who were equally successful and were not happy. You get the phone call at three in the morning, because they're so depressed and they're in Paris and they haven't seen their family forever and why am I even doing this? I remember watching one woman walk off stage 
And I, I, I had this image in my mind still of her walking towards me. I was standing on the side of the stage, and she was literally being pelted with flowers. My flowers were raining past her after this performance, and she has this wonderful, magnanimous smile. She walks off stage. She looks at me, smile drops, hands on the hips. She goes, Jesus, I don't even know why I do this. Mm. And then she turns around, gets a smile back on, and walks back on and performs. And I thought, it's so interesting to see folks who walk off stage and say, as one said to me, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter if I trip or forget a note or crack a note or even though this is a big show and a big broadcast, because I have kids at home and they don't care and they still love me. Um, and I love what I do, so it's fine. It's a big contrast between that and why do I even do what I do? Uh, when the when the one performer walked off and had made that statement about like why do I still do this, I thought it was a fascinating thing. Hmm. I felt awful for her. Um, she had a family, uh, she has a family, um, and I thought awful. It was fascinating, and I thought what what could we do differently? Hmm. What would have to happen differently for this you know, the what if the old what if comic books? What if dot 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 this decision would have been made differently. Could she have explored, A, could she have explored it so she'd be happier, and B, if that was the case, would she actually have performed at a higher level? Hmm. I was really curious about that. What was the role of well-being, happiness, positive relationships, meaning to the performance that we actually put forward on stage? And by the way, you know, having had a pretty diverse a very array of interests earlier on, whether it's sports uh, and music and, and um, uh, numerous other interests intellectually, I thought, and it, it doesn't have to stop on stage. What about athletes? Hmm. What about them? I and mean, how about their well-being? How does that play into their ability to perform? Um, or they're their, their burning out? What about executives who are, had so much pressure on them? I was living in New York at the time. So I had friends in finance. They were not happy. They were making a lot of money. So what happens if they were pursuing something more meaningful, if they were carving out time for their families, for things that were, that were important to them? Um, and that started to, that seed was being uh, was sprouting right about then. Around this time, Dan decided to leave his successful career in the music business and shift to exploring this question of what enables people to flourish. As you can imagine, this was a significant leap from the traditional career path he had planned for himself. My, my dad in particular thought I was nuts. You know, he's like, you're doing incredibly well. You have this enormous future. I used to get teased about how I'd end up running a major agency or a major opera company. and. That was my dream for a long time, and it faded as a dream. It just, dreams change. I think it's an important thing to note is uh, we're, we're pretty bad at predicting the future as human beings. Yeah. Um, what we think we want 10 years down the line, <clears throat> A, we're not the same person 10 years later, and B, what we think it is is really what it actually is. As Dan began to create a plan for what to do next, there were a series of questions that he wanted answers to. These questions were primarily centered around the mental and emotional requirements for people to perform at an extremely high level. Um, how do people uh, perform at their very, very best? And what do they need psychologically? You've trained and trained and trained your body. What's going on upstairs to allow you to really kind of unleash all of that when you want to unleash that in the circumstances that are so challenging? Uh, I want to know more about that, but I also want to apply it to a broader audience. I want to know how to bring that to the performers out there and to the executives and to the entrepreneurs. Dan eventually joined a graduate program led by a West Point professor and sports psychologist, where he was exposed to this new category of human understanding known as positive psychology and the potential impact it can have on human performance. Now, on that syllabus that he put together for me were, were two books that were 
that really opened my eyes, or, or sort of, let's not say opened my eyes, but expanded the right. view. Uh, and one was a book called Flow uh, by Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, um, which is, uh, to, to uh, s- simplify it, it's, how, it's research on how we get into the zone. If you've ever had that, that uh, been doing something, you're so engaged where you lose track of time, where you lose track of what's going on around you, um, uh, where it's just so fascinating to you that you don't want to stop. Mm. Um, that's what he researched for, for decades. And I thought, wait a second, this is really important. These are people doing things that they are doing for intrinsic reasons, that they, that they truly love, not because they're being told, but they truly love, and that's got to play a role. And the other book was a book called Learned Optimism, hmm. which is by Martin Seligman, who is the father of positive psychology. And um, it's what is the role of, of optimism, and he will also talk about emotions in other uh, contexts, but what's the role, and, and many other aspects of positive psychology, but what's the role of optimism in, um, in achieving your goals, whether you're a kid or you're an executive or you're an athlete, which he, all of which he talks about specifically. I thought, this is interesting. So we can have optimism, we can have positive emotions. Relationships are important to our ability to achieve on, at certain levels. This I want to know more about. How do these two, how do these two um, fields come together? And uh, so I went to find him. Uh, I sought him out <laughs> just to touch the hem of his garment. Yeah. And the hem of his garment uh, resided and still resides at the University of Pennsylvania, where they have a, um, a, a master's program in applied positive psychology. Uh, and that was the mind blower wow. to come in because the folks they have there, A, your fellow students are extraordinary. They range from uh, professional athletes. Uh, we had a professional NFL quarterback. Um, uh, we had um, uh, psychiatrists. We had very high-level executives. We had yoga practitioners. We had an enormous array of folks, mm. but also the people who come in. The, the topics that, that we discuss do range from optimism and emotions and hope to relationships and meaning and achievement, to willpower, to choice, to how do we apply this as, as practitioners. I think almost, almost, I'm not going to say most importantly, but of equal importance because there's so much great research out there. Um, but actually, the, the application has been a challenge. So um, to be able to start to explore that, both for individuals and organizations, um, was really quite remarkable. And that question is less of how do we get through the real challenges and hurdles that we have handled in a lot of, in a lot of ways, or at least that field is, is really well explored. But how do we thrive after we've gotten over those hurdles? And that's not as well ex- as explored. And that's something that, that, uh, that Seligman has, has, it's one of the ways he's kind of changed the world. Well, as you know, what's fascinating to me is that of the interviews we've done so far, this is our second interview with someone who has positive psychology as sort of the underpinnings, the foundation of his career. That's right. Yeah. Mike Irwin was the first. Yeah. And, and, and Mike used this concept to um, propel him to start Team Rotoite in Blue. And even now in his current uh, project, the Positivity Project, where he's, you know, bringing this, this methodology, this perspective into schools. I, I just think it's uh, what a perfect time and what an amazing effort that that, that is. That's right. And us... Um as Rule 29, doing a lot of work in collaboration with Positivity Project are seeing the results of positive psychology in these school-aged kids. Yeah, and how it's changing not only the leaders of the school, the students, but also the community and the parents. And, and uh, it's just an amazing thing to, to witness. The study of what allows us to be at our best, what allows us to thrive as human beings. And, and to quote Seligman, those things that make life worth living. Thank you.
when you bring up the topic of positive psychology or, or when you talk about it, is there like resistance to that? Or what is the, the sort of world's, you know, perspective or definition of, of what that is or means? Yeah, it's a great question. And, I, and I'll say it's changed a lot in the, five, in the five years since I finished the program. When I came out, I heard a lot of, you know, so the joke was, oh, so, so it's not negative psychology, right? And like, yeah, yeah, yuck, yuck, I got it, right? Yeah, it's not negative psychology. No. Um, or to, to a colleague of mine who said, behind closed doors, said, isn't this all just kind of a joke? You know, and I said, you know, and, and I, I really appreciated that question. Uh, that honesty, I should say, because um, I know that deep down, uh, more traditional uh, practi- practitioners and, and researchers uh, didn't take it seriously. It's gone from real question mark to something that's much more solid. I think if we look at, at positive psychology in practice, we also um, have uh, some pretty strong foundations to, to, build, to build on, or at least that, that, are, that have come into the game. So for example, you look at Google. There's a reason why they so long ago put foosball tables in their common rooms. It wasn't because playing foosball would make them more money. It was because playing foosball creates a community, allows them to have fun, allows them to play, allows people to come together, allows them to have positive emotions. Um, and that was helping people work in a very different way. Hmm. We look at Yahoo. They let people bring dogs to work, not because they just want dogs there. It's because it changes the way that people have a work environment. And so their bottom line has changed as well. You look at Patagonia, who lines their hallways with surfboards and encourages their, um, their employees to grab one and go out and surf. I'm providing that office is near the ocean. Right. But you know the idea is get out there and do it. Not all day, but when you come back, you're going to be working differently. Mm-hmm. So I think those aspects have... have um, have made some serious headway. What's the question you think you wake up each morning answering? I don't know if I answer it, but I, but I certainly explore it. <laughs> if I have an answer, you know, um, I'll let you know. Uh, I'm really interested in where well-being and success intersect. Right? But well-being and expertise, one could say, uh, in, in certain cases, intersect. What's the role? of well-being in being the best that we can be. And I think the challenge is, um, well, one of the reasons there's no answer is because it's unique to each individual. Um, So really, what are the elements that come into play and how can each person make the most of those elements so that they can experience both well-being and is realizing their potential? One, can you tell tell us the first time you had an experience of like, I believe this could work, like that, that there is a solution? Is there... When did that big idea happen for you? You know, I, in, in a way, I think the big idea started when I snuck down the stairs. Hmm. Because I thought, oh, wait, that's happening. So I knew it was possible. Um, I think what the spark might have been was almost the reverse when I saw it not work for the first time and realized after graduation when I was working in the music business and I saw people who were enormously successful in a field that clearly you're going to be happy because it's music and who wouldn't be happy making music and they weren't and that was the spark to say what's going what's wrong over there so you could either study what's wrong over there or you could study what's right over here and you have to oh I should say you could study both but it's integral that you study both so you can explore what gets in the way of realizing your potential um, and or you can explore um, what allows you to move beyond just the hurdles and realize your potential. And I, that was the side that I was really interested in. Maybe it's because I had been around that so much as a, as a kid. And I saw it, I thought, all right, so what can people do 
to get more of that in their lives. They can do, do, you th- do you think your obsession with it was partly because you were unhappy or you didn't feel like you were at your best? That's a, again, great question. Um, I think that I was exploring myself as I was exploring the topic. Say, what is it that's really gonna, I'm gonna find most fulfilling and most engaging? Because I love music, but I didn't want to sit by myself eight hours a day and play. So that was out of me, right? Um, I love the agenting business, but I knew that there were more people than just musicians, I shouldn't say just, in addition to musicians, there were other folks who were striving to realize potential. I really want to know about them, so music wasn't enough. When it was, when it was performance psych, I thought, this is fascinating how we can be our best, but that's not enough because I want to know about well-being. And then I get to well-being and I thought, how do these two things integrate? Um, and I think we're seeing quite a bit of that, but that wasn't enough. So, you know, the question that I, um, so, so to respond to your question, I think I was constantly exploring both how I could find that place where I'd be thriving, and how, which is so unique to me, but also how everyone else that I came in contact with could explore that as well. Do you think there's a, enough? Is there enough? You know, I, I guess what comes to mind for me in that question is sort of like you, you, when you stop moving, you die. So, I, Anson Dorrance, who is the head coach of women's soccer at University of North Carolina, um, I met a few years ago. Wonderful, wonderful human being. And he said to me, uh, when I was 25, Dan, I knew everything. I knew everything. You know, I don't know how old Anson is now. He's, I'm going to guess. Uh, I'm going to guess. Anson, I'm sorry that he's uh, somewhere in his fifties. How's that? I'm sure he uh, listens to our podcast. So yeah, hey, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, come on, guys. You got. But and he realized that he said, "Now I realize I know nothing." Hmm. Yeah. And if and and it, it also made me reflect on that John, that great John Wooden quote, which is, "When you start having all the right answers, you stop asking all the right questions." So is there enough? I think there's enough when it comes when it comes to your well-being. I am so blessed to have who I have in my life, you know, from a family perspective, from a friend's perspective, and I'm not yearning for anything there. Um, but exploration when it comes to how we can help the world, um, I don't feel like it's not enough, but I feel like it's a never-ending um, journey. You know, Justin, we tend to jump into one of two camps when we try to talk about or understand emotional well-being. There's this science side of things, and then there's also this emotional side of things. Yeah, it's it's really hard not to, I think. Uh, right. Just yeah. depending on how you're wired, you know, it's either you're more, you know, sort of science factually led or, you know, you kind of go with your heart and emotions take over. Yeah, but what Dan is showing is that that both both the the body chemistry as well as um, your emotional kind of state play a role in how we're able to cope with changes in our lives. And, and in a way, I, I like to look at the way that science and uh, philosophy is the right way to put it. That science is especially well recently, and well, I shouldn't say especially, but to me, in my experience, um, how science has pursued the good life. So we can look at. Um, the Thoreaus and the Emersons and, um, and the Whitmans. And we know there's great grains of wonderful truth in there. But I'm curious also to see it from a scientific perspective. So what does it mean 
to be outside in contact with the elements, biophilia, we'll call that study. What does it mean to be moving? What does it mean to be engaging? What does it mean to be exploring um, the way that they did under the scientific lens? Because I think when we can put those two things together, we have an incredibly powerful movement ahead of us um, where we are talking about being the best that we can be. I mean, we're talking about unique individuals, both in terms of their, their capacity um, but also their, their pathways. And I think one of the big challenges these days is that, and to go back to your question about enough and my response about exploration, is that people stop exploring. People think, okay, I have the family, I have the job, I'm paying the bills, I'm good. And I think when we say that's enough, too often that's when we start to uh, move downward. But what about exploring? What are you interested in? You know, what, what do you want to know more about? Or what do you want to experience in your life? Uh, and that experience may be, it may be traveling halfway around the world. It may be just being in your garden in the back because that's what brings you pleasure. But I challenging ourselves is part of, now some people challenge themselves in a huge way, some people less so. Uh, challenging, challenging ourselves is part of growth and it's part of, I think it's part of well-being. Dan, tell us what you're doing now. What's kind of the latest projects or what, what is really um, motivating you, giving you energy? So I'm really lucky that I get to, that I get to teach at NYU. Uh, and the class that I teach and I share with a wonderful colleague of mine um, is called the Science of Happiness. Uh, we have uh, 463 students, I think, this semester. And they come in and they range from uh, theater majors to business majors and everything in between. Uh, not that those two are necessarily black and white, but you know. Yeah. Um, and they come in and they're really, they're really, well, I mean, some cases they're curious, some cases they're fascinated, some cases they're at wit's end about how to be happy, um, how to live a good life. You know, as I tell them eventually, it's not necessarily about happiness, it's about thriving. Um, how do you do it in college, particularly? Because there's so much stress and so much anxiety and so many issues uh, that they really are struggling. At a time where it was once known during, for us, as the four best years of your life. So I get a chance to work with uh, about a thousand students a year, like my colleague and I do, about a thousand students a year, and to be able to help them explore what it means to be well and what it means to find their passion, uh, what it means to, to find meaning and to pursue those things that are of great interest to them um, is an incredible opportunity. Um, I sort of give thanks for that every day. And I get to see it you know, a couple times a week when I work with them. Um, so that is a wonderful, that's a wonderful thing. Um, Alan, my colleague, and I just uh, finished a book uh, called You Thrive, as in University oh, Thriving. Um, and that'll come out in the spring. That was a lesson in and of itself, writing a book like that. Um, but that comes out um, with a little brown in the spring. And that's really aimed uh, at uh, matriculating high school seniors and college students who are looking to thrive rather than struggle through. You know, if you look at surviving college, you get something like 70 million Google responses. Uh, if you look at thriving for college, you get about 3 million. So there's not a whole lot out there, and to be able to share that information with people, it's both the, the, both the information and exercises on what they, next steps they can take. Uh, I'm really excited about, about helping all these students, because the one limitation is, you know, we, I guess we could get a bigger classroom, because we have a wait list, but then it becomes really tough to make it personal. I roam the aisles, and I ask questions, and I touch people on the shoulder, and we have lots of hand-raising and discussion in this big class. But hopefully this will allow 
more college students to thrive. So, so those two things are wonderful. And then, you know, the work that I've been doing with, um, with uh, people who are in various fields, who are experts in various fields, I still work with musicians. Um, and in that case, often it's people coming saying, hey, I, I am really successful and I'm really not happy. Um, what can I do about that? I get the same thing with, with athletes. And the same thing with a lot of executives. I have a lot of folks I work with in law and finance, and they're making money off the charts, but they're not happy people. Hmm. No, they're not. They're not as happy as they would like to be in their lives. And sure. Make that distinction, or they're not being able to spend time with their family enough. They're not really pursuing something that's meaningful to them. And sometimes they will end up leaving their uh, positions entirely. But sometimes it's just a small shift of how they re, kind of reframing of what they're doing. What is meaningful to you to work? Who, who are you connected to at work? If you can connect to your work to what it means for other human beings, you have a much better chance of finding meaning and passion in the work that you do. Um, and so being able to help them use the expertise, because you don't want to pull someone out of a business they've been involved with for 5, 10, 20 years and say it's time to do something else. So they have all this wonderful expertise. If you can help them reframe and put that to use in a way that they find meaningful, often it also ends up helping others as well. So uh, whether it's teaching or writing or doing coaching work with individuals or organizations, um, it's really, it really comes back to crawling down those stairs um, and looking around the corner and saying, these are people who are doing something they love and they're happy in their lives and they're really, really, really skilled at what they do. I think that can come together for a lot of people. I think that's what realizing potential is about. It's not just you are the big earner in the business or you are the most famous person. It is living a life where you feel like you're successful in, in many areas, where you're fulfilled in many areas. Um, and that I think is a very special thing. So I'm fortunate to be able to work in many, in many ways towards that end. Awesome. When we talked about businesses, we talked about uh, grad schools. Uh, one, of the, one of the fields that I think opens a lot of eyes, or at least opens it to a bigger audience, let me say that, is sport. And we've seen a, a huge change in how people coach. So Bob Knight is not out there anymore, at least. And his style of coaching has been, has been um, disappearing. The hardcore coach who, you know, who throws chairs and ends up coaching their, uh, choking their players. And we're seeing now is, are folks like Pete Carroll at Seattle, who has a real positive coaching style, really supports his players. Yeah, I mean, sure, he gets on them, he drives them, but he drives them in a very, very different way. Um, I think we're seeing athletes like Simone Biles. Uh, and there was, a, there was a fascinating article where it really talked about how happy Simone Biles is, how much fun she has. She said, I have fun when I practice. I have fun when I get out there and compete. And who am I to question the Carolis, who have coached so many Olympians? Um, but they said, well, she's allowed to be happy because she wins. The others are not allowed to be happy until they win. And I think we're going to see a change in that. I think mm. we're seeing people like uh, Simone Biles who says, oh, no, I'm happy before I win. Uh, and we're seeing Pele who's saying similar things. We're seeing a number of athletes, Richard Sherman for the Seahawks, who, who was talking about the positive coaching. Um, so whether it's in academia, in business, in sport, in music, um, we're seeing Dave Grohl, Yo-Yo Ma, people who say it's really important to be happy when you're making music. We're seeing exemplars who I hope will catch the eyes of uh, budding musicians, budding athletes, budding academics, budding business people and say, who can say, I want to do it that way. And I can't because they did. So do you feel that 
uh, a lot of this is within our own personal control, just based on how we choose to see the day or, or you know, shift perspective on how we want to approach what's in front of us? Well, change is a very, very hard thing. Um, but I couldn't teach a class on uh, science of happiness if we didn't believe that you could change. Can you imagine? Everyone coming to class and saying, if you're happy, that's awesome. If you're not, sorry. You know, too bad. You're going to learn about the science of what these other people are doing. Um, yeah, part of my question is based on the fact that people will read something and they'll say, you know what? Dan's probably just a great big cheerleader. And when I walk out of his class, he just makes me feel happy. Sure. And that will last for a certain period of time. Right. And I think um, people don't see that a lot of times, you know, they already have these skill sets mm -hmm. within them yeah. and they just need you more as a guide right. to help them see the path. Well, I mean, you're, you're right on with, with that. And it's to say that interventions in positive psychology, let's call them exercises, in positive psychology have been growing over the years. And one of the challenges has been because Seligman has been so demanding when it comes to uh, the rigor, the empirical rigor, uh, that we're not letting any exercises out unless we really have a very, very strong foundation empirically to say, no, this actually works. So, you know, let, let me step back and say, I think there's self-help folks out there who can, who can actually do some, some real good. But we don't know what exactly you should be, they should be doing. We don't know how much good they can do. And they're never going to tell us because they're not going to test it because if it doesn't work 100% of the time, it doesn't sell, right? We can tell you this is going to work 65% of the time in this population, 83% of the time in this population, and try to help find the one that works for you and also say it's not necessarily going to work for everybody. So, for example, um, we know that if you uh, keep track of those things you're grateful for in life every night before you go to sleep. Three things you're grateful for. Not just what you're grateful for, but why you are grateful for them. Not just I'm grateful for my son, but I'm grateful for my son today specifically because. Right? I'm not just grateful for my colleague at work or for my, opportun or for my opportunity to, uh, to run a marathon, but because this is what it makes me feel. We know that if you do that for at least a month, that our levels of, of positive emotion go up. Why? Well, we're, kind of repro we're basically reprogramming, reprogramming our brain. Right, uh, we, we tend to think of those negative things in our life and we skip over the positive things in our life. So the first couple of days, if you're out there and you want to try this, it's a challenge. The first night you're going to go and think, what am I grateful for and why am I grateful for it? And you can ask, it could be a struggle, as will the second day, as will the third day. It's not just remembering what you're grateful for, but what happens is your brain starts to scan the world for things that you are grateful for. So a week in, you're walking down the street going, I never realized how often I get to see this beautiful uh, vista as I walk to work. That's really a wonderful thing because you do it every day. But when you're scanning for those things you're grateful for, then it's starting to change the way that your brain's working. And we've, we've seen studies that it's, it's actually very, very powerful. You can move all the way over to something like mindfulness, meditation, to say uh, Michael Bain, University of Pennsylvania, has been looking at meditation for, uh, I want to say it's 30 plus years now. Um, and he finds that people who meditate um, uh, for oh, just two weeks. So for example, uh, people who meditate for just two weeks find a significant raise in their, ready students, your LSAT scores. So um, we see changes in scores. We see changes in emotional regulation from meditation. Um, we're able to look at things like exercise and know that when people exercise before, uh, for my students, for example, before they come into the classroom, they learn more effectively. Hmm. They more, le learn more efficiently. And um, we're able to look at uh, use of character strengths. So when you're exercising a strength like bravery or uh, appreciation of beauty or um, 
humility or uh, wisdom or teamwork, that when that qualifies the strength for you, and there's a very easy free assessment to, to get that, then you're far more likely to be engaged. In fact, the Gallup organization said you're 73% more likely to be engaged when you're focused on your strengths than when you're focused on your weaknesses. So yes, it's very easy to sound like a cheerleader. And I do come off as a cheerleader sometimes, um, but what, I, what I've always been completely intent on in, in my field is making sure that uh, there's data to back up everything that I say and everything that I sign, everything that I recommend. Um, I used to get teased a lot. Hey, Tony Robbins, when are you going to get out there and hit the road and do the arenas, right? Because I have a big personality. Um, and I thought, I can't, I can't, I can't do it responsibly. I need to really learn what science is saying before I get out there and say anything about it. And that's what's happened. So um, am I enthusiastic? Absolutely. Why wouldn't I be? Why wouldn't I be? We get the opportunity to live better lives. Um, and there's great science to, to support uh, that, that effort. Have you ever told your parents that story about when you were three? I did tell my story. Well, here, well here's the thing. Let me, let me back up. Um, I didn't have to because I would always fall asleep on the landing. Mm. And they would always find me and carry me back upstairs. So they knew. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Dan, thank you for your time for being on our show and, yeah, and um, putting up with me and, and, you know, really being challenged by the insightful guest host, Bob Davidson, right. um, with his wonderful questions. Yeah. You guys ask great questions. I, it's been a real pleasure. So awesome. thank you so much for having me. Thank on. you. Thanks. Yeah. I appreciate it. Again, Dan, thank you so much for your time. If you'd like to learn more about Dan, you can check him out online at daniellearner.com. That's D-A-N-I-E-L. L-E-R-N-E-R.com. By the way, Bob would be so proud of you right now that you spelled that out. You're welcome, Bob. And hey, if you're in charge of selecting speakers for an event, definitely give him a look. And if you're a high school senior or a parent of one, check out Dan's new book, You Thrive. Justin, that's you. I know, it's scary. Our sponsor for this episode is O'Neill Printing. O'Neill is a Phoenix, Arizona-based commercial printer that brings your vision to life with state-of-the-art technology, color, and a pioneering approach. Learn more at O'NeillPrint.com. O'Neill is made to impress. We'd like to thank Rule 29 for giving us the space and resources to create design of. And also thank you to Sleeping at Last for providing the soundtrack to our show. And before I forget, Wills, we're going to have a pretty wonderful Sleeping at Last announcement on the next, on the next episode. That's right. That's right. Steve Wick is our audio engineer. And you know, Justin, Steve is just like that positive, encouraging word from a good friend that's going to get you through your day. So, so true. Wow. You know how to cut to the core of me, Baxter. You're so wise. You're like a miniature Buddha covered in hair. And please follow us online at Design of Podcast and keep an eye out for our next episode dropping in about a month. We're going to hear from one of the directors of housing for the city of Chicago. And if you like this episode or any of our other past episodes, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.